Do you ever remember as a child liking to play the game Follow the Leader? I remember playing that as a kid, and I also remember it didn't ever seem to last that long. Because someone would announce and parade in there, you know, follow me. Kind of like this guy in, in Dr. Possinger's story, you know, follow me. And so, okay, fine, we'll follow you if they could convince us they were going to do some cool stuff. And we'd walk across the log and do some other things. But invariably, before very long, what would happen? Somebody would kind of manipulate the process and say, no, 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 we don't want to follow you anymore. Follow me. And so then you have all these splits and then, no, follow me. And you want people to follow you. In fact, you want to be the leader, right? So let me ask you now, do you like being the leader? Is it fun to have everybody following you? And if so, how many people would you like to lead? 10, 20, 50, 100, 10,000? How would you like to lead more than 2 million people on a backpacking trip that lasts 40 years? Does that sound like a lot of fun? I mean, if they were all pathfinders, it'd be a little easier, but we're going to bring their parents who are used to things being a little more cush. Let's suppose it's nominating committee time. Would you accept the responsibility of leading an inexperienced pathfinder club of two million? My, my. We would all laugh at the proposal... Because we realize that leadership can be awfully tough. Out of all the characters in the Bible, my heart goes out the most, perhaps, to... Can you guess who I'm thinking of? Moses. That's right. Perhaps the toughest leadership assignment in all of Scripture. I mean, take a look at the abbreviated list of leadership crises. Are you ready? Leadership crisis number one, before crossing the Red Sea, just having witnessed the, sin, the ten supernatural plagues in Egypt, they come to the Red Sea and the Egyptians are behind them and the people are crying out, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here in the desert to be buried? Leadership crisis number one. Leadership crisis number two, after God parts the Red Sea. I mean, this is incredible. This is phenomenal what God has just done. Now they're on the other side and they're fearful that they're not going to have enough food, that they're going to run out. They haven't run out yet. God always makes provision, but they're starting to count and they say, we're going to run out. We're going to starve. And they say, what's the problem if we'd only be back in the flesh pots of Egypt, they say. And God says, don't worry, I have a plan. And he gives them Manna. Leadership crisis number three. They run out of water. God has provided every step of the way, but now again we're at a crisis time, and this time it's so bad they threaten to stone Moses. I would call that a pretty significant crisis, wouldn't you? Leadership crisis number four. Where is he? It's been 40 days. We haven't seen or heard of him. 
Aaron, give us a God. Give us something golden. Give us something to follow. And we see the meltdown of the community of faith. After the Ten Commandments have been verbally, personally spoken by God himself in that Mount Sinai experience just 40 days later. Leadership crisis number five. They wanted meat. We're tired of this manna stuff. Give us meat. Leadership crisis number six. In Numbers 11, we find Moses so discouraged that we find him pleading that God will take his very life. He says, what have I done to displease you, God, that you put the burden of all these people on me? That's how bad it was. Leadership crisis number seven. This is a major meltdown. The 12 spies come back and are over, the overwhelming majority say, we can't do it. We can't go in. This is impossible. After all this that they've been through. And again, the people are ready to turn and stone Moses. Leadership crisis number eight. Remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with 250 well-known community leaders, stand up to challenge Moses' leadership, and then the earth opens up and swallows those men. And the very next day, the people cry out, you, Moses, you killed those guys. And then leadership crisis number nine, the leader himself melts down and casts disrepute on the name of God and forfeits the promised land. After going through so much, why anybody would want to be a prophet for God, his mouthpiece, if you will, is beyond me. But when you've been called by God to be a prophet, not a pastor, a prophet... You have to be willing to pay the price of that divine calling. Of course they're going to reject you. Of course they're going to spit in your face. But when you're called, you're called. And you have to be faithful to that call. But I want to go back and look at one of those specific crises that I believe, sadly, is very relevant to our time today. It's just following Moses' low point in Numbers chapter 11... And the devil, I believe, is deciding to capitalize on his low point. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 12 is where we're going to pick up our story. Numbers chapter 12. And we'll we'll be beginning in verse 1. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses... Because of the Ethiopian woman which he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now from the Hebrew, it's clear, Miriam is the instigator. She's listed first, and the verb is both feminine and singular. So this is Miriam's idea. She's got her brother to come along with her in this. But she's the one leading the way. And what is their complaint? Moses' wife, Zipporah... She was an Ethiopian or a Cushite, it may say in your translation. And while she still was a direct uh, descendant of Abraham, her skin is just a little bit darker 
than the Hebrew skin. So Miriam uses this little visible difference as a pretext for her jealousy. However, the reality is that when Moses was overwhelmed, it was Zipporah, his wife, that went to her father, Jethro, you recall, and Jethro counseled Moses to select others to share in this responsibility. And when Moses acted on that counsel, he did not consult Miriam or Aaron. And so now they're feeling a little jealous of Moses, their kid brother, neglecting them. Moses in this high uplifted role of leadership. And so verse 2, so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Can you just hear the whine in her voice? Aren't we pretty important too? And the Lord heard it. I submit to you that private criticism of the Lord's leader is very public to God. What was David's policy with King Saul, that rotten, fallen king? David said, I will not put forth my hand against what? The Lord's anointed. And verse 3, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Now, he's not naturally humble or meek as the murderer of the Egyptian. Took 40 long years in the wilderness, I believe, for God to instill in his future leader these qualities of humbleness and meekness. But the reality is only a meek and humble man knows how to be submissive to God. Is it true? And not only to God, but his subordinates, and at the same time to be courageous and a dynamic leader. And so we continue on. Suddenly, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. What is this going to be about? You don't call yourself to be a prophet, notice. God does the calling. Let's finish verse 6. Then the Lord said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So God is the one that calls the prophet. It's not the community of faith. It's not the church, but it's God who does the calling. It may be through a vision, it may be through a dream, but only through me, God says. Now hit the pause button right there. Keep your finger there. I want to turn very quickly to Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. And here in one of, I believe it's Peter's sermons that he's talking and he's quoting from the Old Testament. Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and he says these words in Acts chapter 2, 17 and 18, and you're familiar with this, and it shall come to pass in the, when? Last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Notice, in the last days, regardless of gender or age or social class, God will pour out his spirit. God is the one who does the calling and they shall prophesy. So going back to Numbers, verse 8. We'll back up at the top of that, verse 6. Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. Perhaps a more correct Hebrew translation of that is more literally mouth to mouth. Even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. And then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He doesn't speak to Moses heart to heart or in ambiguous visions or dreams. But so plainly, he says, mouth to mouth. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will rise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's why over and over again, when a prophet speaks, the Bible says, hear the word of the Lord. Because the authority for which they speak is not their own authority, it's God's authority. And so to finish out our story, verse 9, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. And then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us, in which we have done foolishly. And in which we have sinned. Miriam's disrespect of God's prophet is seen here as both foolishness and sinful. When God sends a prophet, we better listen up. Because a prophet speaks the word of the Lord. So we're done with this story, but in case you're wondering, Moses pleads to the Lord on behalf of Miriam, and after seven probably long days, leprous days, outside the camp for her sin and her foolishness, she's restored. But some of you are probably thinking, okay, that makes sense. I mean, I can follow the prophets of Scripture and so on, but... How can we be sure if a prophet is from the Lord? I mean, can anybody just claim to be a prophet? It's a fair question. There's a lot of people trying to prophesy about a variety of things today, aren't there? Constantly making predictions about the economy or about North Korea or about the Pope or about Mayan calendars and how the elections will never make it to the elections in November. Emails are constantly flying around with warnings and admonitions. But if somebody claims to have the gift of prophecy, 
What are the tests? The Bible gives us several tests. Let's go through them very quickly. This will be review. I know you probably know these, but let's review these. Jeremiah 28 verse 9 says, When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has sent. Unless the prophecy is conditional, like in the case of Jonah and the city of Nineveh, repent or else, and they repented. But unless it's conditional, how often of the time does it come to pass? A hundred percent of the time. Is God guessing about what's going to happen? Absolutely not. So unless it's conditional, when God says something through a prophet, it's a hundred percent accurate. Test number two, Deuteronomy 13 verses one to three. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, or if the sign or wonder which, which he has spoken takes place. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, a prophet always leads the people in obedience to God's will. The point is not predictions, but faithfulness to the will of God. So just because somebody makes a prediction and it comes to pass, but now they're saying, oh, now that you, we've earned your trust, let's follow after other gods. I don't think so. Both Moses and John the Baptist, two of the greatest prophets in Holy Scripture, neither one made a prediction. Predictions don't make a prophet, but faithfulness to God is essential. You know what else? You don't have to write a book in Holy Scripture to be a prophet either. Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, this is the greatest prophet that ever lived. And he never wrote a book that made it into the canon. You don't have to write a book in the Bible to be a prophet. The point is faithfulness to the word of God. Test number three, Isaiah 8.20, to the law and testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Test number four. We find in 1 John chapter 4, the first three verses. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So a true prophet will place centrality on Jesus Christ. True prophets lead you towards Jesus, not away from him. Oh, well, that's old. I have something new, perhaps. No, 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 no. They're going to be pointing you back, back, back to Jesus Christ. And the last test here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but, be, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. 
Did people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And then again in verse 20 of that chapter, by their fruit you shall know them. So the fruit of their lives reveals their divine credentials. Does that mean they never make a mistake? No, they're still human. But if there's something significant going on, that's a problem. By their fruits, you shall know them. So those are the five. If they are making predictions and less conditional, they have to be 100% true. Number two, they always lead one to obedience to God's will. Number three, they speak biblically. They uphold Scripture. Number four, they place emphasis on the centrality of Jesus Christ. And number five, what does the fruit in their lives reveal about them? Do you know what does not appear on the list? When the prophet disagrees with me. It's not on the list. Another one that's not on the list. When the, pro- when the prophet does not fit my paradigm. Another one. When the prophet disagrees with the latest peer pressure from the scientific community. Again, not on the list. Yet I see today within our church, talking all of Adventism now, people that are criticizing and discrediting the Lord's anointed, God's prophets. And the word of the Lord is being thrown out. What does Amos 3 verse 7 say? Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. It's the way God works. In fact, it's always been the way God has worked. It isn't new. And sometimes the Seventh-day Adventists were, were fearful of this idea. You all believe in a prophet? You have your own prophet? That's really strange. Well, yeah, I can understand why people would think that was strange, sort of. But if you honestly think about it, Has that not been God's way of communicating with his people throughout time? Isn't this a biblical concept? Is this really brand new? I would submit to you that in every major period of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what was impending. Because we serve a God that is so loving and so gracious, he wants his people to know. Aren't you glad for that? When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? Noah. Noah was a prophet. When God was going to raise up a chosen people, who is the father of Israel? Whom did God raise up? Father Abraham. He was a prophet. When the Exodus came, whom did God raise up? Moses. He was a prophet. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Samuel. To help them navigate through that process, my goodness. When the exile came for for that kingdom, whom did God raise up? And that's a handful of them. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, the list goes on and on. When the Messiah came the first time, whom did God raise up? John the Baptist. When the gospel was to go to the Gentile and all the Gentiles in all the world, whom did God raise up? Paul. He was a prophet. 
when the Messiah is going to come the second time, whom would God raise up? Question, would it not be logical to conclude that even as he has raised up the prophetic gift over and over and over again, the most glorious event perhaps in human history, would he leave it? Would he leave it without the prophetic gift manifested at the end of time? No, I don't believe that he would. It only makes sense to me. In every major period of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what is impending. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Because I hear a lot of people say, well, we're people of the book. And that's good. We are people of the book. Sola Scriptura, right? Yet they are assuming when they tell you that, that means I can throw out our most current prophet. But if we are truly people of the book, then we find ourselves in trouble if we adopt that. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or remnant, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, we let the book of Revelation interpret itself. Revelation 19, verse 10. And at the very end of that verse, it says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus, the identifying marks of God's community of faith, God's remnant people, at the end of time, is that there will be a group of people that keep the commandments of God and have the presence of His prophetic gift in their midst. And it's consistent with the way God has worked all the way down through history in every major period of earth's history. And so if you're going to be a person of the book, then you have to accept this too. The Bible itself says God's remnant people will have the gift of prophecy. So if we reject the gift of prophecy, then we're not the remnant people, and it's not the end of time, and we can't be looking for the Lord to come soon. We have to wait for all these other things to take place. We might as well just kick back. It all starts to crumble down. But wouldn't it make sense for God to follow the same line he's followed all times before? Of course it would. Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Her name was Ellen White, a woman of remarkable spiritual gifts who lived most of her life in the 19th century, yet through her writings and public ministry, She has made a revolutionary impact on millions of people right up into the 21st century. From the age of 17 until she died 70 years later, Ellen White received nearly 2,000 visions and dreams, from a few moments in length to nearly four hours in length. It were those revelations that resulted in a remarkable literary output even though she only had a third-grade education. 
That literary output includes today 100 books available in English titles. 55,000 pages of handwritten manuscripts. Some of the younger ones in this room, we don't even know how to write one page handwritten. We have a cramp. 55,000 pages of manuscript, 5,000 periodical articles. 5,000. One of her books, her life-changing masterpiece on the Christian life, Steps to Christ, has impacted my life in remarkable ways. I can't tell you how many times I've read that book over and over and over. I like to read it every year. Sometimes I read it more than that. Sometimes I'll flip through the pages and I'll find a chapter that I need. And I'll read it and it will speak to me more often than not. And sometimes I've found myself repeating and reading the exact same chapter the next day and the next day and the next day. If you don't have a copy of that book after church today, I don't have one for you to take stacks and to, you know, give them to all your friends. But if you do not have your very own Steps to Christ, please do not leave here today without one. They have some beautiful versions of it now. With pictures and various things on it. Here's one that easily fits in your pocket. Has beautiful pictures all the way through it. Here's another one. I have about, uh, I don't know, about 65 of both of these. Well, of each of these together combined, I have about 65. Take them home. Read it. Discover it for yourself. If you do not have your own copy, take one with you. This little book has been published, do you know how many languages? 135 languages. I challenge you, this can be a group project. Come up with 135 languages without accessing Google. Can you come up with 135 languages? Did you know that Ellen White may very well be or is the most well or most translated woman writer in literature and the most translated American author of either gender? As a further consequence of her prophetic gift, she helped raise up a Christian movement today that offers the largest Protestant educational system on the planet. Did you know that? Also as a result of that gift, this Christian movement today offers the most extensive Protestant health system on earth, including Loma Linda University and hospital. It's been a little while now, but I'm sure many of you are aware of the fact that even National Geographic had to recognize the fact This was back in 2005. Had to recognize the fact that there are places on the world where people are living longer than they should, longer than everywhere else. What's going on? And they interviewed this gal from Loma Linda. She's since passed away. But there's a picture of her filling her her car with gas, still driving, and she's over or was over 100 there. What is it? Well, it's the health message that Ellen White gave us long before any of, or most of what she said was popular. Um, and since then, there have been scores of other mentions of these blue zones and various things from everything from the Oprah Winfrey show to here's another one in the U.S. News and World Report. Um, and the article in there is, is how to live longer and uh, 10 tips for living to 100. You want to live to 100? You're, you're really curious what, what else is on the list, don't you? Don't retire, floss every day, move around, eat a fiber-rich cereal and breakfast. Did you do that this morning? 
Get at least six hours of shut-eye. You probably could do better than that. Consume whole foods, not supplements. Do you know what's on the list? Number nine, live like a Seventh-day Adventist. Members of the denomination have an average life expectancy of 89, about a decade longer than the average American. One of the basic tenets of the religion is that it's important to cherish the body that's on loan from God, which means no smoking, alcohol, or overindulging in sweets. Followers typically stick to a vegetarian diet based on fruits, vegetables, beans, and nuts and get plenty of exercise. They also, they're also very focused on family and community. U.S. News and World Report. On the health benefits of living like a Seventh-day Adventist. George Barna, have you heard of him? Um, if you're a pastor in the denomination, you hear about George Barna all the time. He's the founder of the Barna Group. Uh, he has this marketing research firm that specializes in the studying of church trends and religious beliefs and behavior of Americans. So if you want to know why the youth are leaving or why this is happening or that's happening, he's constantly dividing up America into different people groups, different religions, why this is happening, why that's happening. Is it affecting all of Protestantism or just a certain sect? I mean, he's got numbers on anything and everything you can imagine. And he did a study. He's got 48 different books you can sort through on all this information he puts out. He did a study in North America of the most influential authors to pastors of all denominations. So he's doing this study in North America, all pastors of all denominations. In the category of pastors under the age of 40 of all denominations, the top authors that they read, business consultant James Collins... Seminary professor Tom Rayner, Pastor John Ortberg, and you know who else is on the list? 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White. I about fell over. That means that you have a Baptist pastor who's friends with a Methodist pastor or a Presbyterian pastor, and they're having lunch. And they're saying, what are you reading? What are you, reading? What are you getting good sermon material from? What, you know, what's feeding you? Oh, have you read Ellen White? Ellen who? She's phenomenal. She's incredible. You haven't read her? No. And they're having these conversations about how incredible she is and how they're being blessed by her writings to where she's the top four of pastors of all denominations in North America. Yet here in the Adventist Church, Ellen White... Do you have a prophet? You know, know, we, we have a lot of things in common. And I'm not saying we should lead with her. But we shouldn't be embarrassed of her either, should we? When we have the rest of the world telling us how great she is, and we're trying to just, oh, I don't know. Watch out, I'll get to ranting and raving. That's what Charles would say right now. As a result of her visionary leadership, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which she helped found, is in more nations on earth than any other Protestant denomination. You put all those things together. And I do not believe there is a human explanation for such a productive and fruitful a life and ministry. Do our writings then take the place of the Bible in my life or in my church? Absolutely not. In fact, the opposite is true. Can I share with you another study? Um, 
Well, before I do that, you know how she described her, her writings, right? The lesser light pointing to the greater light. Just like the moon keeps reflecting back to the glory of the sun. And that's what I see. I can personally attest, every time I read her writings, I keep being pointed back to Jesus, keep being pointed back to Scripture, keep understanding things in Scripture that didn't make any sense to me before. And maybe it was even right there, but I, I just didn't see it. And she keeps pointing back, pointing back to God's Word. Okay, here's the survey. Roger Dudley and Des Cummings Jr. surveyed more than 8,200 members of this time, uh, Seventh-day Adventists. This isn't Barna now, this is some other guys here. 193 Seventh-day Adventist churches here in North America. 20 different measures of spiritual life were being measured in this survey among Adventists, including one question that went like this. Do you read writings of Ellen White or not? Very simple. One of the questions that was in there, do you read them or not? And the results are stunning. Because what the people taking the, the survey didn't know was that that was really one of the main questions that influenced the rest of the, the study. 82% of the regular readers of Ellen White's writings assessed their relationship with Jesus as intimate. That's pretty good. 82%. The figure was only 56 for those that never read Ellen White or just occasionally. That's a 26% difference. 82% of regular readers of Ellen White indicated a high degree of assurance of being right with God compared to 59% of non-readers. Again, that's a huge difference. Readers of Ellen White were 24% more involved in Christian outreach and service activities. They're not navel-gazing. They're out in the community. 82% of those who read Ellen White regularly also have daily personal Bible study. And this one is what really shocked me too, as compared with 47% of the non-readers. Exactly the opposite affect what false prophets tend to have upon their followers. And I hear people say all the time, well, you know, Ellen White, Ellen White, Ellen White, I just read to the Bible and the Bible only. The people that read Ellen White read their Bibles more, almost twice as much. Now, I want to be sensitive. I understand that people have had a bad experience, if you will. They feel like it's been knocked over them, over their head, or whatever expression they tend to use. And I'm sorry for that. As soon as I start saying, well, inspiration says, or Ellen White says, I need to be very careful with that because I'm assuming that you see her as authoritative, right? And if I don't, it just further makes you upset in terms of, what has that got to do with it? So show me from Scripture. And we can talk about Ellen White as long as we both feel that she is authoritative. But otherwise, let's talk about Scripture, right? But to throw her out entirely. Ellen White's somebody we have to, to, over time, get to know. To read her for ourselves. And that's what I want to challenge each of us to do this morning. Because the reality is, if we read her writings, we're going to understand Scripture more, and we're going to read it almost twice as much. That's what the survey says. False prophets draw you away from Holy Scripture. Follow me. Follow my teaching. The very opposite. But within this community of faith, those that read have a deeper relationship with Holy Scripture and with the living God. And in fact, in every one of the 20 spiritual life categories in this survey... The regular readers of Ellen White scored higher than the non-readers. 
It's the Adventist advantage, if you will. They, they ended up offering this after they concluded their survey and their results. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey, on every single item that deals with personal attitudes or practices of spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the member who reads them only occasionally or never. Now listen to me carefully. If I were the enemy of Christ, if I were the enemy of God's chosen people, you could be certain that I would do everything in my power to destroy anything that would lead a person closer to my arch nemesis, Jesus Christ. I would do everything to destroy that which would draw people closer to him. And if I were the enemy, I would be particularly focused on this gift because of the devastating way it just repeatedly exposes my biggest influences. And I would set my sights in particular on this one book, Great Controversy, because of its devastating revelation of my in-time strategies. It's the whole playbook. I would work hard 24-7 to stone the prophet and destroy the prophet's influence in the community. I'd do it with an innuendo. I'd do it with a flippant remark. I'd do it with an email. I'd do it with as many diabolical websites as I could raise up. I'd do it in a private conversation. I'd do it with a laugh. I'd do it with a snicker. I would make certain that any new believer that was any way possible open to influence, I'd be sure that door was shut. That's what I would do if I were the enemy. And it's no wonder that centuries ago these two predictions were made. From the pen of Ellen White, volume 1 of Selected Messages, page 48. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. It saddens me how much I see that coming true today. Even now as I speak, and you're well aware of this, this issue, it's not a new issue, but we have Adventist universities teaching its biology students that evolution is the best option. And this issue has been made known. People are speaking out against it. There's a process in, in place. Um, and I'm just learning how difficult all this is and how interconnected. I mean, it's a mess. And I want to assure you that everything that can be done is being done, but it's a mess. Primarily because you have people on so many levels that feel that, well, this creation thing, I just don't know. Let's try and merge it with evolution. Really? And while I don't know for certain, but I have a hunch that this began when people began to lose confidence in Ellen White's writings. And it's my hunch, call me crazy, that this led to a lack of confidence in some portions of Scripture. And again, it's a hunch that from there it's a slippery slope downward. Because I've seen it happen far too many times. And even this was predicted, volume 4 of the Testimonies, page 211. It is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the Testimonies. 
Next. Once you do that, there's a next step. Watch the steps now. Next follows skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith, the pillars of our position. Then, please notice, this is a regression now. There's another step. Then doubt as to the Holy Scriptures. And then, last step, the downward march to perdition, end quote. Perdition, have you heard that word before? It's the very word that Jesus uses in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer referring to none other than Judas, the son of perdition. Judas, who was part of the inner circle of Christ, but then began to doubt the testimony of Jesus. Ah, come on, it can't be. And then the dying of the testimony led to the dying of the mission. Maybe the mission really isn't that big. And then maybe he's not who he says he really is. And after that, it's a tumble. No God, no life, and he hangs himself. And it all begins with the rejection of the testimony of Jesus. And I wonder, I wonder if the reason Judas rejected the testimony of Jesus was because it cut across his personal life, his private life. I wonder at times when people make such a big show about their personal convictions, what is there? Could there be something that's cut across their private life, like greed with Judas? Cut across his personal life, his private practice. And I wonder also if it cut across Judas' paradigm. It doesn't fit my picture of who Jesus is supposed to be. And I wonder if today people reject Ellen White for the same reasons, because it doesn't fit their paradigm. The son of perdition, the downward march. And it's no wonder that 2 Chronicles 20.20 that Shane read to us this morning reads the way that it does. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe in his prophets, and you shall prosper. Because the reality is, folks, the writings of the messenger either bear the signet of God or the signet of Satan. You can't say, oh, a little bit of both. That's foolishness. They cannot be both. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and good fruit. And so I'm appealing to each of us today. Maybe it's time for you to stop taking everybody else's word for it and to taste the fruit for yourself. And so I'm going to be out in the back, like always. And as you're leaving, if you would like a copy of one of these Steps to Christ, simply ask for one, and I'll be happy to give one to you. Go home. See if the title of this book is not some self-fulfilling prophecy in your own life. Powerful book. Filled with Scripture. Every page overflowing with Scripture, 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 Scripture. Point us back to Jesus Christ. And so that's my challenge. Taste the fruit for yourself. I have. And I believe. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love and the compassion that you have shown your people down through the ages, that you long for us to have a clear understanding 
of the major event that is impending. And Lord, I believe with all my heart you're coming soon. Lord, the scriptures help us to understand that so clearly. But with the aid of Ellen White, there can be deeper and fuller understanding for the present time in which we live. Lord, maybe we have cast it off. Maybe we have ignored it. But I pray that each one here would dedicate again and make a decision to give it a chance, to read it on their own, to pick up one of these steps to Christ and say, okay, I'll try and see what all the fuss is about. And may your spirit draw us closer and closer to you through that experience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.